Hey everybody, Magnus here. I made a promise a long time ago that every single donation that comes into the Two True Freaks podcast network in my name is going to get mentioned on this show. It's actually part of my uh, closing tag in this uh, in my show. It, I just put the same tag at the end of every episode. And that's pretty much that. I must say, though, that I never really expected anyone to really contribute any money. And the reason for that is because I went into podcasting with my eyes pretty wide open that this is no way to earn a whole lot of money. I mean, if you're going into this thing expecting to get rich and all that stuff, well, I suspect you're going to be in for some bitter friggin' disappointment. So... On that basis, I, that, that sort of set my expectation, I guess. That's where I was coming from with respect to this show. And so imagine my surprise when people actually did start making donations. And then imagine my further surprise when Scott Gardner revealed that his policy is that donations that are made in my name for Trenis Magnus Punch's reality, those are mine to keep. To do with as I see fit. And so, uh, because of that, I want to make a special point of saying that no one should feel obligated to uh, make a donation if they don't want to. But if they want to, feel free. But the promise is that every single time somebody does it, if they include a message with their donation, I'm going to read that in the opening of each episode. And it's especially poignant in this episode because the donation is actually specifically for this episode. And so I would just like to, first of all, publicly thank Douglas Meacham for making his uh, contribution to me. Now, at no point does Douglas say it's, it's okay to state how much this donation is, and so I'm just going to keep that to myself for, uh, for the time being. But uh, believe me, it's a, a quite a chunk of change, believe you me. And so because of this, I'm actually going to be able to take my beloved out to a nice dinner. So uh, just fill in the blanks on that one. But uh, Doug writes, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, Episode 92. Dear Trentus, it is my pleasure to sponsor the episode covering one of the most pivotal moments in Smallville. Namely, Episode 17, Rosetta. I look forward to your retrospectives every eighth episode. I enjoy much of your podcast, especially the Superman-centric ones. Listening to your retrospectives allow me to reflect upon where I was in life when the episode aired. Smallville's been a big part of my young adult life, and I enjoy hearing your thoughts on the show. Keep up the good work, and look for that silver lining in the dreaded Season 4. Signed, Doug Meacham. So again, thank you very much, Doug. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and the expense of doing this. Now, to the best of my knowledge, Doug does not host a podcast of his own. So I'm not sure if many of you know who he is, but he's been a Facebook friend of mine for a pretty long time now. And one of the things that I like about Doug, apart from the fact of just how cool he is, is he's when he... Uh, 
makes a comment about something I post or something that somebody else posts or just, or, or, you know, whatever it is that's going on. He usually has a pretty insightful remark to make, and I don't know how he does it, but somehow Doug can make his point in like 50 words or less. I've tried to do that a thousand fucking times myself, and it never works. Somehow, though, Doug does that all the time, and I am insanely jealous of him for that. So, anyway, as I say, I'm not sure how many of you know him, but he's an extremely cool guy. His girlfriend's a badass, and they just seem like really cool people to me. And I would be saying this even if Doug hadn't sent over this contribution the way that he did, this donation, but... Since he has, this is actually a really good forum for me to say that, you know, Doug, first of all, thank you for doing it. Uh, number two, you're just a really cool guy. I've always thought so. And uh, number three, just, you know, this is really going to be a kind of a help to me. And, uh, you, know, some, you know, something I wanted to do in taking uh, my girlfriend out to a nice dinner someplace. And obviously, number four, uh, Scott Gardner, I'd like to thank him. I'm not sure that he listens to... Actually, I'm not sure if he listens to my show at all, but if he does, I'm really not sure if he listens to my Smallville episodes because he's not really a Smallville guy. But, Scott, if you're listening to this, thank you for sending this over to me. The reason uh, that I'm kind of taken aback by this, people, is you have to understand, this is... Well, Scott and Chris, but since we're talking about Scott here, this is Scott's podcast network. And the way I framed... The that little tag at the end of every show that I do is that the donations are actually going to uh, Scott and Chris, you know, the two true freaks. It's actually because that was that was my understanding, you know, and I thought that was only fair. I'm not really paying them to be on their network. They're out of the goodness of their hearts. They're giving me space. But first of all, there's no obligation for them to do so. And second of all, you know, I would have assumed that the trade-off in doing this is that any donations that are made are theirs to keep. And that was something I was actually perfectly fine with. So um, I'd also like to thank Scott and all of this for his generosity and um, in giving me the donation as opposed to keeping it, keeping it for himself. So uh, thank you very much. And again, uh, people, this is not me trying to put pressure on any of you to make a donation. If you, if you want to donate, that's fine. I welcome it. If you don't want to donate, if you just want to listen to the show, that's fine too. I welcome that. You know, so whatever it is that you feel comfortable doing, do it. You know, uh, but for those of you who have donated, I just want to say thanks to all of you, and also want to say thank you to Scott for for sending it over to me because again, this was not the understanding that I, or at least the assumption that I made when I joined up with the network. I assumed that all money was theirs to keep. You know, fair is fair. You know, they're the ones that have to pay money, you know, for the server space. But based on comments that Chris Honeywell has made, it's apparently really not that big a problem uh, as far as, you know, keeping the uh, podcast network paid for and going and all that stuff because they have uh, multiple funding mechanisms to make sure that happens. And so I'm just I'm really grateful to all of you. And as it goes for this specific uh, donation, thank you very much, Doug, again, uh, for uh, for making it, because this isn't something that I've really tried to push a whole lot. And so the fact that, you know, you were kind enough to do it anyway is, uh, it really does mean a lot. And so thank you again. And so I think that's pretty much that. So, Doug, 
this episode's dedicated to you. This is the one that uh, that you were wanting to hear. Now, I must tell you that I'm not going to talk about Rosetta in the first segment of this episode. It's actually got a second segment all to itself. And, and you know, I, I felt like the there were, like, logistical reasons for doing that because it, it pretty much splits itself perfectly in half. The episodes that, pro, uh, you know, precede Rosetta, those are the first half. Uh, that, those are the first segment, basically the first half of the episode. And then the second segment, or the second half of the episode, that's just Rosetta all by itself. So uh, hopefully this is this is what, you know, you, you're going to feel like you're going to get your money's worth out of this. So hopefully that, you know, that works out for you. So I think that's pretty much that. So... Um Enjoy the rest of the episode, and Doug, thanks again. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right about here I usually say that I love talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. Truth is, though, I've probably spent more time talking about just comics than pretty much any other subject. Hey, comics are my first love, what can I say? Still, I enjoy taking breaks once in a while to gab about Smallville. Smallville, you see, is my favorite TV show ever in the history of ever, always, and forever. It's also my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. Now, saying that tends to piss some people off because apparently Chris Reeve deserves the top spot on that list because, hey, it's fucking Chris Reeve. Well, he doesn't get the top spot on my list, bucko. Chew it up, spit it out, and just deal with it. Anyhow. Excuse me, I'm smoking here. Anyhow, when I first launched this podcast, I'd set aside every eighth episode to talk about Star Wars. But that got pretty old after a while. Uh, The cause behind that is that I just didn't have as much to say about Star Wars as I originally assumed. The other thing is that setting aside a designated Star Wars episode felt a little too close to how Star Wars Monthly Monday from Two True Freaks is done. But when I first set up the format of my show, I gotta tell you, I I just 
didn't think much about that. I just created a format that seemed logical to me, and that was about as much as I thought about it. But it became a consideration after I got my feet wet as a podcaster. And it became full-blown fucking panic when I moved my business over to the Two True Freaks podcast network from Libsyn. So long ago. Anyway, that was pretty much the final nail in the coffin for my periodic Star Wars shows. Honestly, I'd like to avoid pissing off my hosts. You know, since I'm on their network now and everything. And I'd also like to avoid the appearance of copying other people's ideas, too. And so it happened that I abolished my Star Wars showcase episodes. Now, that's not to say I won't talk about Star Wars again in in some future show, because I'm sure I will. But... I just won't do it in the context of a dedicated format where I have a a designated, set-aside, sort of Star Wars, I don't know, periodical or periodic episode, right? That's what I'm telling you here. So anyway, well, something had to fill the void, and let's not forget that I'd made a pretty big splash with my very first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein... I defended Smallville from a lot of baseless attacks and gripes that people toss around, apparently without having ever actually fucking watched the show. So, my thinking here was that I could maybe, and by this I mean in my first episode, I could half-ass revisit that idea of, of talking about Smallville by doing shows where I analyze Smallville, not just defend it, you see but actively talk up all the shit I love about the show, and then analyze it. Why do characters do what they do? How well does Smallville make some obscure nobody farm boy into Superman? That kind of stuff. See, I won't argue that Smallville is perfect, because it isn't. And anybody who says that it is doesn't know what they're talking about. But at the same time, it shitloads better than it ever got credit for when it was coming on TV, and it pains me that other people either can't or won't acknowledge that. A little bit more from my cigarette here. I'd like to think that somewhere... Scott Rifen from Dinner for Geeks is listening to me smoke while I podcast and probably is thinking that this is the next logical step for me. Right? Rather than taking smoke breaks in the middle of my podcast, as I'm apparently famous for, I can now smoke while I podcast. Breaking new ground here every day, people. Stick with me. Anyway. Also, and let me pause here by saying, <clears throat> it's one thing to conclude that Smallville as a TV show just isn't your brand of vodka. I don't have a problem with that. It's quite another, though, to say that it somehow dishonors what Superman's all about. Smallville makes no effort to fit in with the tone or continuity of the Reeve movies. So, if your love of Superman begins and ends with the Christopher Reeve movies, I can't help you. But if you just never saw what was so damn good about Smallville, or maybe you just dismissed it too quickly... These episodes that I'm doing here, these Smallville retrospectives, may give you a reason to, I don't know, to reconsider your opinion. That's the idea, anyway.
Now, originally, I thought I could record commentaries for all of the episodes of the series, but after I counted toes a little bit, I realized that worked out to in excess of 200-some-odd shows. People, even I don't have time for that. Besides, I'd probably end up giving myself a coronary if I had to do a commentary for all of the dreaded season four. And the reason for that is because the dreaded season four sucks. But doing little retrospectives like this one would allow me to talk about a handful of Smallville episodes at a stretch as I work my way through each of the seasons. There's plenty of shit here to last for several years' worth of episodes as I've currently paced them out, and so all in all, this seemed like a pretty good little compromise, right? Anyway, the idea here is to be kind of holistic in my approach by tying subsequent developments in later seasons back to what's come before as I go along. The continuity on Smallville is incredibly fucking underrated, you see, and it's high time someone talked about that at length. Anyway, to get down to brass tacks, last time I finished my remarks after recapping Smallville Season 2, Episode 12, Insurgents. That can mean only one thing. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 2, Episode 13, Suspect. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> So from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com.
Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? What? Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. This is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now talking about Smallville season two, beginning with Suspect, episode number thirteen. This is the Who Shot Mr. Burns episode of Smallville as the local billionaire pariah gets ventilated and literally the entire town has motive to do the job. I've talked a time or two about episodes where nothing major happens. Where the episode is basically a chance for Al Goff and Miles Miller to just play around in the universe they've created. And in a sense, this episode somewhat fits that description. This is the first time the show ever did a whodunit type of mystery. And that's probably because this is the first time such a thing was even really possible. There weren't enough supporting characters in the first season to to really make that a viable plot line. Now, the would-be murderer was never going to be a series regular. If their name appears in the opening credits, for all practical purposes, you can pretty much assume none of them are going to end up being the real culprit in all of this. So that means a supporting character has to do the deed. And there just weren't enough of those to choose from back in season one. But in season two, you've got Helen Bryce, Dominic Santori, Sheriff Ethan, Henry Small, and probably other characters who could believably have a motive to blow uh, Lionel Luther's head off. And any of them could have, done, could have gone down for the crime without really affecting a whole lot of the story of the show. All of them are viable suspects. But at the same time, none of them are indispensable to the series. The fact that one of them has framed Jonathan for the crime makes for pretty good drama. Now, apart from being... Smallville's first whodunit, this episode is also significant for being Henry Small's last appearance on the show. He vanishes after this episode, never to be seen or heard from again. Now, 
I was never fond of Henry Small to begin with, so in a lot of ways, I don't care. But at the same time, since he contributed basically little of any value to the story, I have to wonder what the hell he was ever introduced for in the first place. I guess apart from giving Lana something to do for a few episodes. Henry isn't alone here, either. This is Jason Connery's final appearance as Dominic, and obviously Mitchell Kosterman never returns to play Sheriff Ethan. So, a lot of people said goodbye with this episode. Now, I usually don't discuss technical stuff like cinematography very often, but I'm invoking the lineage clause here because it's, it's really only fair to talk about this episode's flashbacks. The director, Ken Biller, shot the flashback sequences on 16mm 16 millimeter color reversal film to achieve a sort of grainy, dirty look in all of those flashback sequences. And I think the end result looks fucking amazing. So kudos to Ken Biller for being willing to take risks and chances with the material. Deeper themes and implications. Lex and Lionel are at odds for a decent bit of this show over Jonathan being the prime suspect in Lionel's shooting. It's interesting because Insurgents ended with Lex being completely rejected by Lionel. Blood's thicker than water, though. As much as Lex admires the Kent family, his first loyalty's still to his father. He doesn't take kindly to a member of the Kent family apparently trying to kill Lionel. And for his own part, Clark is believably suspicious that Lex might be the culprit. As Clark himself says, It's not like I haven't seen you shoot someone before. Clark's only too well aware of how tense things are between Lex and Lionel. In his desperation to exonerate Jonathan, Clark was obviously willing to falsely implicate Lex in the crime. Considering that even Lex suspected Jonathan, is it any wonder that Lex was offended that Clark would cast aspersions on him? and that he do so in spite of the evidence pointing to Jonathan? So, yeah, believable conflict here. Anyway, episode 14, Rush. Another day, another Jeff Loeb episode, another Red Kryptonite story. Anyway, originally I wanted to say that this episode somewhat fits in with the idea of playing with this new universe that Goff and Miller have created, Except it doesn't. On the one hand, yeah, this is another character out of character episode. Kook, for short. On the other hand, there are consequences for this episode. Clark still shit-talked Lex and broke Lana's heart. Lex is quick to forgive. Lana? Not so much. The other thing, though, is that Clark sees for the first time that Pete being part of his inner circle could be a liability. This is the first time that Pete knowing the secret could actually threaten Clark. I think you could reasonably interpret Pete's actions in this episode as Clark getting confirmation that his secret needs to stay secret. It needs to be kept under wraps. Even if he desperately wants to tell someone it just isn't a good idea. Partly it's because Pete threatened to expose Clark's secret, and partly it's because Pete was able to kick Clark's ass with green kryptonite. Another thing in this episode intru- that this episode introduces is Dr. Walden. Uh, 
by itself, that's important. But it's also important to note that Lex hired Dr. Walden because Clark obviously respects the guy's work. Lex seems to accept Clark's approval as a kind of endorsement. To be fair, it's not like there are millions and millions of people in the world with Dr. Walden's credentials, and that's true. Only a limited number of people in the world, as far as percentages go, there only a limited number of people out there are qualified to do the kind of work that Dr. Walden does. But even on that basis, Dr. Walden still isn't the only game in town. Lex could have chosen someone else. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. And yes, we'll be seeing more of Dr. Walden in the future. Chekhov's gun here, people. This is going somewhere. Now, significant of exactly nothing is the moment at the start of the episode where some kid named Travis kisses Chloe. If you're at all familiar with teenage Clark Kent from the Silver Age, Travis is a dead ringer for that version of Clark. Same sweater, same glasses, same shirt, same everything. I'm convinced that every now and then, Smallville has comic book connections that are a total coincidence. Other times, the reference is just too specific to think that there wasn't some kind of intent behind it. Now, all of that is to say that I don't know what to think of the Travis thing. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter because Travis isn't really all that crucial to this episode, but it's interesting to think about, yes? Finally, when Clark goes to the Talon to apologize to Lana, he brings a rose with him. And she later drops it into a trash can. Maybe she's been through the Clark Kent roller coaster too many times, but a simple apology just isn't going to cut it anymore. Prodigal. Episode 15. This is where lineage gets paid off. Lex tracks, uh, tracks down his brother Lucas. Here's some continuity for you. The rose that Clark gave to Lana at the end of Rush is still in the trash can in this episode. So take that, continuity whiners. Clark applies for a job at the Talon strictly to be with Lana, but ends up getting fired. Which I, I guess is predictable enough. Still... I think there's juice to the idea of Clark working for Lana. He always has to rush off and save the day, so how does he justify that when he's expected to be punctual, stay at work for a full shift, and all of that kind of stuff? Now, I'm not picking on this episode. Anytime you do a TV show, you only have time for so many ideas and so many subplots. You can't run off and do everything that you might want to do. I'm just saying that I think this was a good idea, and I wish more could have been done with it. But it's not a big loss that nothing really follows from this. Now, for that matter, I gotta say that Clark working any kind of job during the high school years might have been kind of fun. Even as an adult, we know that Clark is going to have kind of a challenge balancing his job, which is to say his 9-to-5 occupation, over and against Superman's never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. So... It might have been kind of cool to see Clark struggling with that even as a teenager. On the other hand, you could argue that his attempt at working a job in this episode serves that very purpose. So, hmm. Deeper themes and implications. That's really what this episode revolves around. 
the deeper themes and implications. When Lex recovers Lucas, the first stop is Lionel's office. But really, that's only to make a few threats and just throw his balls around a little bit. After that, Lex goes straight to the Kent farm so that Clark can meet his brother. Now, like I said before, blood's still thicker than water, but I think Lex sees Clark meeting Lucas as his two brothers meeting each other. Clark might be a little slow on the uptake when it comes to Chloe having the hots for him, but even here, he knows why Lex really brought Lucas to the farm. So, when Lex has to run off and deal with some problem or another, Clark volunteers to hang out with Lucas for a while and get to know him a little bit. And notice that Lex doesn't need any persuading about this. He agrees to it immediately. Something else, Clark suspects Lionel's behind Dirk's death. Now, up to this point, Lionel hasn't been portrayed as Mother Teresa or anything. He's been shown to be dishonest, ruthless, and completely willing to blackmail people to achieve his ends. But at the same time, it's never even been suggested that he'd resort to murder. But this time, it was suggested. Nothing's ever proven conclusively, and really, not much ever comes out of this particular plot point. But it sets up future developments with, with Lionel that come that come up later in uh, episodes in the future, and we're going to deal with those in greater detail, but by the time that stuff happens, it's thanks to this episode that it, it doesn't seem like it came out of nowhere. There's at least precedent for someone to suspect Lionel of murder. That's what I'm saying. Oh, and another thing. Apparently, Lucas was going to have a much bigger role this season, but at some point... That got changed when Paul Wesley, the actor who plays uh, Lucas here, when Paul Wesley was offered a spot in a pilot, which would have interrupted his schedule for Smallville. Now, I don't know the specifics of any of that, but I've heard that story often enough now that I, I tend to believe it. Apparently, there was something more that was planned for Lucas, and it had to get canceled. So... The fact that this episode episode marks his first and last appearance, the first and last time that we ever see Lucas Luthor, apparently wasn't Goff and Miller's original preference. Finally, Lex makes a passing reference to a ranch the Luthor family used to own in Montana. It's a throwaway line of dialogue, but believe it or not, we haven't heard the last of this. Anyway, so I think that's that for this episode. So, next is episode 16, Fever. The last time we saw the key was in episode 12, Insurgents, when Martha buried it in a container of flour. But it's back here with a vengeance. Offhand, this is one of the few times a a Smallville episode's antagonist isn't even sentient. Or, for that matter, even really malevolent. Now, that's significant of precisely jack shit, but there it is. Some interesting stuff comes to light here, though. The secret that Ryan find, found out about back in the episode entitled... Um... Ryan... Was Martha's pregnancy. She sat on the news because it just seemed like it was too good to be true. And I can kind of relate to that, you know? No sense telling other people about your, your good news, your secret, if your good luck 
isn't going to last very long, right? Something else, Helen's been offered a fellowship at Johns Hopkins. She doesn't know what to do about it. And unfortunately, it comes along at a pretty lousy moment in her relationship with Lex because Lex obviously doesn't feel comfortable trying to sway her decision in either direction. Instead, he tries to split the difference by being supportive of whatever decision she makes, but speaking from experience, I can tell you that never works. Anytime someone I'm dating gets an offer to go to work at Johns Hopkins, I always make my preferences on the subject very clear. Had to learn that one the hard way. And guys, if you're listening to this, if you're with someone, your wife, your girlfriend, whoever, she gets a job offer from Johns Hopkins, just say what's on your mind. Don't try to play it both ways. Learn from my mistake and from Lex's mistake. Express an opinion about Johns Hopkins. Anyway, in Helen's case, though, she needs to know that Lex is invested in her decision, too. So rather than just coming out and saying so, in the end, Lex just gives her a key to the mansion. Other bits of business going on here, too, though. Deeper themes and implications. To some extent, anyway. Chloe pays a visit to Clark while he's sacked out and unconscious on the couch. She pours her heart out to him about how worried she is about him, how much she wants him to get better, and, oh yeah, that she's totally in love with him or whatever. Still, Chloe at least visited Clark. Lana couldn't bring herself to do it. On top of that, Lana snooped around and found Chloe's note she read from while Clark was sick. There's a lot Lana could have done here. She could have encouraged Chloe to try making her move on Clark when he's not unconscious. She could have told Clark about Chloe's feelings and let him make up his own mind. She could have done absolutely nothing except go the fuck out of her way to make sure Chloe never gets the idea anything's happening between Lana and Clark. As you might have guessed, though, Lana does none of those things. She makes no effort to make things simpler for anybody, and she doesn't try to at least keep things between herself and Clark on the sly. In fact, you might say she's pretty obvious about everything right in front of Chloe just minutes after reading that little love note for Clark. I mean, what a bitch! So, in Prodigal, Clark broke Lana's heart. In Fever, he broke Chloe's heart. It's interesting how Lana and Chloe react. Chloe tries to bounce back and be cool about it. Lana bitches and whines and throws tantrums. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Another interesting thing is that Jonathan is not only willing to take on the United States government in order to save his family, but he's perfectly willing to put Pete in harm's way in order to do it. Again, this ties back to how ridiculously seriously Jonathan takes his family. Nothing, nothing will ever be allowed to threaten his family. There's absolutely no limit to what Jonathan's willing to do to protect Martha and Clark. Oh yeah, something else. Something else is the vial of Clark's blood that Helen takes in this episode. It becomes quite the football. Keep your eye on this. Just when you think you'll never hear about this plot point again... 
You hear about this plot point again. It's fucked up, I swear. To a lesser degree, we also haven't seen the last of Chloe's love letter to Clark. It has a brief but important role to play much later down the line. Now, a little bit of cross-promotion going on here as Pete keeps hyping the Talon mix at the food, uh, at the food bank party at the Talon. Coincidentally or not, a CD called The Talon Mix was released the week after this episode aired. Of less importance is Chloe's new car in this episode. She keeps this, uh, this red Volkswagen Beetle convertible for quite a few years, as I recall. Now, yes, 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 I'm sure there was some product placement deal going on for this, but I think there's something very Chloe about driving around in a red VW Beetle convertible. And I think that'll uh, just about do it for this segment. In the second episode of the Season 2 Retrospective, I I remarked that the first several episodes this season focused on Clark's fallibility. What we see is Clark running up against his own limitations, or else making bonehead decisions, and this was a common theme in, in most of the episodes and a little bit too much of a common theme in those episodes for me to believe that it was all just a complete coincidence. For the episodes I talked about this time around, though, the main issue seemed to be less about Clark's fallibility and more about Clark's vulnerability. Clark systematically decimated in various of these episodes through various of his frailties, whether it's getting betrayed by his friends or getting taken apart by subatomic germs. Clark really has the hell beaten out of him in, in this bunch of episodes. Now, I mention this to say, compare this bunch of episodes to what we saw in season one, a lot of which revolved around setting up Clark's raw firepower. And it's clear, at least to me, that Goff and Miller are building towards something. They wanted to establish early on this season that Clark has his share of foibles. It's a subject that wasn't just touched upon and then abandoned. This is something they spent a lot of fucking time investigating. So the logical question to ask is, why would they do that? Stew on that during these messages. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something.
He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years. And that's why I've decided to give him his due in Taking Flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the boy wonder. And every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. Teenage Anarchist! And I'm back, continuing my journey through the second season of Smallville. I wanted this next episode to have a segment all to itself, because, honestly, it deserves it. Before we get into that, though, I've got a few remarks. I enjoy the second season in general. It's a lot of fun, it hits the ground running, and mostly, it's a lot stronger in terms of narrative and character than even the first season. And that's not me picking on the first season. I enjoy the first season. But the second season is just better in many cases. That said, there are some structural weaknesses inherent to season two. Fever, as an episode, is pretty straightforward. What you see is what you get. And that's not a bad thing. Episodes like that make for fun diversions. Still, with an eye on what else is coming in this season, I think it could be fairly said that season two is heavily front-loaded with fun, easy-going episodes, and it waited maybe too long to start building up what would become the season arc. At the time of Fever, season two's bigger storyline hasn't even been hinted at yet. But that starts changing in a big bad way after Fever. Yes, I'm referring to episode 17, Rosetta. And that's what I'll be talking about here in this segment. Before we get into that, though, you need to know that Rosetta is what made me a Smallville true believer. Before Rosetta, I watched the show fairly sporadically. I'd drop out for five or six or seven episodes at a stretch, watch those episodes, drop out again, watch another five or six episodes at a stretch, wash, rinse, repeat. As I said in my first episode, partly this was because of a kind of snooty attitude on my part, and that I felt like Smallville was just a teen drama, indulging in some of the trappings of the Superman mythos, but it didn't have the balls to commit and really be Superman. The other thing is, again, as I said before, that i just broken up with somebody. Exes have a funny way of coming back, though. And when she dropped in on me later, she asked, she asked about 
about Smallville because she assumed I'd be interested in it and following Smallville obsessively. Well, when she found out that I hadn't really kept up with it, she gushed about Smallville and how awesome it is and all that. Well, you know how it goes. Your girlfriend falls in love with something, so you hate it on a vowed, simple fucking principle. Because she loves it. You want nothing to do with whatever she thinks is cool. At the same time, though, I couldn't really commit to not watching Smallville. It felt like there was an amazing show lurking in there somewhere. Now look, I gotta be honest. Those first, those first season episodes can be a little rough to get through whenever you have that much baggage working against you. I acknowledge that. So... I split the difference by being an itinerant viewer of the series. Like I said, I'd watch a few episodes, drop out for a while. Binge watch a few more episodes, drop out for a while. Again and again and again. On and on and on. That all changed with Rosetta. Starting with Rosetta, I never missed another episode of Smallville. I was in it for the long haul from that point on. In fact... I watched the remainder of Season 2 and all of Season 3 as live TV broadcasts. Understand, before Rosetta, the only episode I saw as a live, quote-unquote, broadcast uh, on TV was X-Ray, the Season 1 episode. I downloaded all the rest, because I just thought that was easier. And I guess another thing is, I was usually busy when Smallville aired... But I guess, you know what, let's face it, it's not like I was ever, like, a committed viewer to it. But, in my defense, when season one was in full swing, people, I was a full-time college student. And on top of that, I worked a side job from home as a web designer. And then on top of that, I worked a part-time job uh, at night. I worked overnight as a supply restocker at a uh, at this retail store that was near my apartment at the time. So... Downloading the episodes, and this is my defense, downloading the episodes just made more sense because, because I had a, just a totally fucked up schedule. I mean, what do you want to hear? But my situation had changed big time since then by the time Rosetta came on. And my new schedule and living arrangement allowed me to watch everything from Rosetta in season, in, in, uh, season 2 through Covenant in Season 3 as they were all aired on TV. No downloads, no videotapes, no TiVo, as we called it back then. Nothing. So, for those keeping track, I only watched one first season episode on broadcast TV. Until Rosetta came along, I downloaded the rest of them off the internet. Now, a big part of the impetus for this, for this about-face, for changing my policy here, the reason I wanted to watch Rosetta live on TV when it was broadcast is because it had one hell of a marketing push behind it. The fact that Christopher Reeve was guest starring uh, in this episode was a major part of Rosetta's hype. It was big news when he was cast in the show. I remember seeing that announcement pop up everywhere. But during the lead-up to Rosetta's premiere, especially then, I remember that the TV spots were all over the fucking place. I mean, it was big news that Christopher Reeve was... Kind of, sort of, coming back to Superman in a way, maybe, from a certain point of view. By that point, 
It had been over a year since I'd had that run-in with my ex-girlfriend. She'd gone her way, and I'd gone mine. Hey, why obsess over the past, right? Another thing, though, is Christopher Reeve's endorsement has always meant a lot to me. Just because his version of Superman isn't my absolute number one top dog, ultra, ultimate, unbeatable favorite anymore... That doesn't mean that I don't hold Christopher Reeve in huge regard. Then as now, I considered his decision to appear on Smallville as a sort of endorsement of what Smallville's all about. And if it's good enough for Christopher Reeve, who am I to say he's wrong? By the time Rosetta came on TV, I'd missed the overwhelming majority of season two. Not all of it, but a good chunk of it. And I made the decision... I decided not to catch up on season two, not to watch all the episodes that I'd missed. I wanted to see the, uh, the episode Rosetta the same way a lot of other people were probably going to see it. And I guess what I mean by that is it made sense to me that some portion of Rosetta's viewing audience hadn't really followed Smallville up to that point. Seems logical, doesn't it? Plus... I wanted the shock of seeing how Smallville had grown since the last episode that I'd seen. Was there any growth at all? Or on the other extreme, would it even be recognizable as as the same show? Only one way to find out. Anywho, so that's the backstory. Like Fever, Rosetta is another episode in the show that has no real antagonist. However, unlike Fever, there's not even a destructive force of any kind for Clark to square off with in this episode. No. His struggles relate completely to his quest for identity and his search for the truth. But it's like anything else. Sometimes in life, you need to be careful, what you, uh, you need to be careful about going looking for the truth. Because you just might find it. How certain are you that you want to know? The metaphor Al Goff and Miles Miller are working with here is clearly the adopted kid looking for answers about his past. It's wrapped up in mysterious spaceships and reclusive scientists and unknown alien languages, but underneath all that stuff is a pretty uh, identifiable crisis of identity. And it's not really limited to adopted children either. Everybody asks big questions like this in life. Clark isn't the first, and he won't be the last. This is an incredibly dense, mythos-heavy episode of Smallville. It was always logical that Goff and Miller would look for just the right actor to play the part of Virgil Swan, the gatekeeper to many of the answers Clark's been looking for. Can anybody argue that they didn't make the right choice by casting Christopher Reeve? The beauty of it is that there's an ambiguity to Reeve's performance, at least at first. Sure, he claims he's not out to hurt or exploit Clark, but especially when he and Clark first meet, that's not the only way to interpret what Swan says. In fact... When credits roll for Rosetta, 
Swan's motives are arguably still up for grabs. The music in those scenes only enhances the mystery of Swan's true motives. It's alternately creepy, mysterious, sinister, and hopeful. I'll talk more about the music in, in just a minute, but I mention it here to say only that it's the perfect, I guess, companion piece or addition to Reeve's performance. Other people have said, especially after his accident, it's easy to forget that Christopher Reeve was a Juilliard-trained film actor. Because of that, Reeve didn't need a whole lot in order to turn a script page into a scene. Now, I'm not usually one to gush about actors and performing, but seriously, put this shit on pause. Go back and watch his stuff from Rosetta. It's almost absurd how much Reeve is able to bring across just by sitting there and speaking. And there's more where that came from. I mean, from the outset, this episode has an eerie, almost sinister tone going for it. It starts with Clark dreaming about the Kawachi Caves, and then he wakes up in the middle of the road. It's implied that he flew there in his sleep. All throughout the episode, you get the sense that Clark's alien heritage is an almost sentient force, and he's being stalked by it all through this episode. It reaches a fever pitch when Clark accidentally burns the, Krypto the uh, Kryptonian symbol for hope onto the side of the barn. When Clark finally hears the truth, you realize this episode isn't about Clark's true origins. Because, honestly, that's information that most of us already have. If you're at all familiar with, ep with, uh, with the Superman mythos, Rosetta doesn't really offer you very much that's new. Now, the important, the important thing isn't the information that Clark receives. The important thing in this episode is how he reacts to it. When it first comes out that Dr. Swan may have the answers Clark's been looking for about his heritage, he's eager to find out. By the end of the episode, though, it's obvious that Clark maybe has a different opinion now. Be careful of searching for the truth. You just might find it. In this case, Clark discovers that his parents sent him to Earth to conquer it. It's a message from my biological father. I'm sure I'm reading it wrong. Why, what does it say? On this third planet from this star, soul, you be God among men. They are a flawed race, rule them with strength, my son. That is where your greatness lies. I think I was sent here to conquer. What kind of planet am I from? Maybe you did misread it, Clark. But even if you didn't, it's you who decides what kind of a life you're going to lead. Not me, not your mother, not your biological parents. What if it's part of who I am? Is that the kind of person I will become? Clark Kent, you're here to be a force for good, not a force for evil. Well, how can you be so sure? Because I am your father. I raised you, and I know you better than anyone. Keep in mind, 
Clark doesn't know that Krypton blew up right as he was sent to Earth. Clark knows Krypton's gone, but there's nothing in this episode to reassure Clark that he was sent to Earth specifically to save him from Krypton's fate. So for all Clark knows, he was sent here specifically to conquer the Earth and bring it into submission. The fact that Krypton no longer exists may have nothing to do with Clark's presence on and supposed mission to conquer Earth. And for the moment, let's put aside whether or not any of this is even true. You have to understand that this news plays upon every fucking insecurity Clark's ever had about himself. He prizes the fact that he's Jonathan and Martha Kent's son. He may not be theirs biologically, but through an act of sheer will, the Kents have made themselves into a functional family unit. Finding out that Clark's an alien threatens that. Clark, uh, Clark's wanted to be normal his whole life. It's one thing for Clark to think that he's somehow a government experiment or something like that. I think he could deal with that. Or at least I think he thinks he could deal with that. But finding out that he has absolutely no relation whatsoever to planet Earth is alienation, so to speak, that Clark doesn't need. It's one more thing that isolates him, not just from all of humanity, but specifically from his family and his friends. And here's the thing. Clark's interpretation of the message from his parents is that he's meant to rule the world. And for all Clark knows, he might not have any say in that. He has powers the likes of which the planet Earth isn't equipped to deal with. If it came down to it, nobody in this world would be able to stop him. And Clark knows that. Suppose it's possible to somehow control him and remove his free will from the equation. Finding out that he's an alien doesn't take anything off the table. In fact, fuck, if anything, it makes more things theoretically possible. Clark may not want to rule the world. He may not want to hurt anybody. But Clark knows he may not have a choice in the matter when all's said and done. And understand, as I've said before, Clark spent a decent portion of the season up close and personal with his own fallibility. He's perfectly capable of making the wrong choice, saying the wrong thing, taking the wrong course of action. He's also been robbed of his free will on the occasions when he's been in contact with red kryptonite. Shit! He even says he had no, no choice about putting the key in the wall in this very episode. I don't think this is an unreasonable interpretation of Clark's fears at all. And because of all that stuff, it's no stretch to think that Clark's probably had nightmares about how his powers could be misused by someone who's determined to do so. His free will may not be an object in this whole mess. The news about his true origins threatens to unravel Clark's already fragile identity. He spent years lying to himself about his chances of living a completely normal life. And while he's perfectly comfortable using his powers to do to do work on the farm and I guess I guess to a lesser extent to protect Smallville from meteor freaks this is hardly the idyllic life he's always envisioned for himself Clark willfully puts on a happy face on all this stuff but let's cut the shit he leads a pretty fucked up life and so discovering that he comes from a now defunct planet known as Krypton is the worst possible thing Clark could learn at the worst 
possible time. Considering what's come before in season two, it's easy to understand why Clark freaks out about learning the truth of his alien heritage. And without spoiling ahead, it makes some of the decisions Clark makes at the end of season two that much easier to believe. I'm not trying to beat this to death, people. Honestly, I'm not. But it's important to understand that all through the series, the viewer has known more about Clark's origins than Clark has himself. And even when this episode ends, all Clark knows for sure is that his name is Kal-El, he comes from a planet called Krypton, that planet doesn't exist anymore, he may have been sent here to take over the planet, Earth, and he may have no choice in the matter. So when credits roll for Rosetta, the viewer still knows more about Clark's origins than he does. In fact, there's an argument that Clark only discovered the scariest, most damning parts of his history. Anyway, apart from that stuff, everybody's on their A-game for Rosetta. Up to this point in the series, the music composed by Mark Snow has been serviceable, but not especially memorable in many cases. That's mostly why I haven't talked about the scores in Smallville very much. But Mark Snow's work here, it, well, it changes on two different levels in Rosetta. First, a good bit of the music before Clark meets Dr. Swan is just dark and melodic and sinister. It's menacing and otherworldly. The best example is the scene where Clark accidentally scorches the barn with his heat vision. The music there is just fucking creepy. Second, obviously Snow makes generous use of the music from the Superman films. But even recognizable tracks like The Fortress of Solitude and the main title still have a kind of skewed, ambiguous quality to them. And like I said a while ago, they're the perfect companion to Reeves' kind of creepy performance. And the rest of the show's cast, they don't sleep through this episode either. Tom Welling plays Clark as almost manic in his search for the truth. Clark's bullshit is starting to affect other people. He wakes up in the middle of the road, in the middle of the night, without any memory of how he got there. He accidentally torches the barn, and he can't even explain how or why the key is able to call out to him. All of this is taking a toll on Clark, and Welling brings it all across very well. Now, true, Welling isn't as good an actor in this episode as he will be later on in the series, but he's able to do things in this episode that I don't think he would have been capable of in the first season. Clark is worried, but driven. Anxious, but determined. Welling conveys all of that with what looks like ease to me. (sighs) Other stuff. Chloe and Lex, the most inquisitive characters on the show, sense that there's blood in the water. They both push for answers when and where they can. Allison Mack cranks Chloe's reporter instinct into overdrive without pushing Chloe to the point where the viewer hates her. And ditto Michael Rosenbaum as he plays Lex more determined than ever to discover the truth about the caves and just what the fuck Clark's connection to them might be. Lex knows something's up, 
He knows Clark knows more than he's saying, but it never gets to the point where Rosenbaum loses the viewer's sympathies. On and on and on. Rosetta works okay as an isolated piece unto itself, but you need to watch it within the broader context of the second season to, to really get uh, the, the richness of it. All that stuff is the good news. I don't want to spoil ahead too much, but with an eye on what else is coming in later episodes, I think it could be fairly said that season two is, as I said before, it's just it's just overloaded. It, it's too heavy in the beginning with these fun and easygoing episodes. The season arc doesn't really begin until Rosetta, at least on a plot level. All the necessary character dynamics were very well established in prior episodes, but the plot mechanics were missing until fairly late in the game. At this point, the season's bigger storyline, we're only just now getting to it. This is episode 17 of a 23-episode season. After Rosetta, there are only six episodes to really ramp things up to the big conclusion. How well that actually works is up to you to decide. Now... From an editorial standpoint, it's tricky. I understand that. But I also can't quite shake the feeling that the second season in general, and Rosetta in particular, might have been better served had Rosetta taken place as episode 13. Had Rosetta been episode 13, things like Insurgents and Rush would have a completely different edge to them. It's a Monday morning quarterback thing to say. I realize that. And I also realize that there may have been practical and technical difficulties with moving part of the Smallville production team up to New York to shoot scenes with Christopher Reeve any sooner than they were able to do it. I get that too. In fact, fuck it. I'll go another step further here and say that maybe maybe Rosetta was originally planned to happen earlier in the season. Maybe it was supposed to be like a mid-season finale or something like that, and then... It just ended up not being possible. Through nobody's fault, through a quirk of scheduling, you know, it's nobody's really to blame. It's just that the logistics of it are so heavily dependent upon Christopher Reeve and his schedule, you couldn't have done it any sooner than when they did it. I'm totally down with all of that. I'm just trying to be analytical here and suggest that things could have turned out differently and possibly better. What I'm not doing is bashing on anybody's hard work to make this series, this season, and this episode the best they could have been with the resources that were available at the time. In fact, you really want to just look at things in a weird, kind of fucked up way. There's an argument that Rosetta isn't part of season two. Rosetta is actually the debut of season three because of how it either tackles or sets up issues and conflicts that'll be explored in greater depth after season two. And by the which I mean in season three. I'm not saying that I do or don't believe that myself. I'm just saying that lots of other people have made that argument, and I want to give them their day in court. Season 3 is loaded with big ideas, big conflicts, big revelations, big questions, and other shit. So there's juice to the idea that the 22 episodes that officially comprise Season 3 aren't enough to fit in all of those ideas. And because of that, Season 3 actually started in Season 2 with Rosetta. Food for thought, if nothing else. In the final analysis, though, 
Rosetta is fine television and a great Superman story. The writing, acting, visual effects, and all the other tools of the trade are top fucking notch in this episode. Al Goff, Miles Miller, and everyone else involved in the show's production have a lot to be proud of here. I bet some of you doubted that I could do an entire segment about just one episode of Smallville. Shame on you. Anyway, so that's enough of that bullshit. So, so I think that's that. So I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know... You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so... Why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.
Please help us conquer paralysis. Call the Christopher E. Paralysis Foundation at 1-800-225-0292. Or visit the CRPF website at ChristopherReeve.org. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Very much. Thank you. Please. Please call. <laughs>